listening to Let the Right Films In, your weekly podcast on the IMDb's top 250 movies. I am your host, Kayla St. Ange, the kid that you're looking at. I am joined, as always, by my faithful co-host, Tyler Hannon, who was hiding in the piano the entire time. Just under some papers. <laughs> Just under some papers. We are joined again by return guest, all-around amazing human, and maybe possible owner of the podcast at this point, Kyle Minton, who is, you know, the Paris that we will always have. Mm. Mm-hmm. Romantic. <laughs> yes. So today, I'm having a lot of feelings myself. <laughs> today we're going to be talking about the movie Casablanca, which is, you know, one of the greatest movies of all time. And we figured 15 episodes in, we're probably ready to cover that. But before that, we're going to talk about some stuff that we've seen recently. Mm. Kyle, would you like to start that out? Tyler's giving me, like, a look that I just what? know that I'm going to regret this entire segment already. <laughs> oh, so every Chris Evans quarter that's ever happened? <laughs> you know, while we're on the subject. No, nope. I, I really feel like Kayla should go first, and then Tyler and I will get our sins out after. You know what? Actually, that's probably not a bad idea. Cause As the owner. I don't know if... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. That's my recommendation. As the owner. Uh, you go. I w- okay, I was just going to say, I don't know if you guys uh, heard about this little movie that came out over the weekend. Uh, I think it's called Star Wars. Mm. Sister <laughs> anyway, Wars. So I didn't watch that because I'm the devil, apparently. Accurate. <laughs> but uh, what I did watch this week was an interesting array of things, to be honest. Um, ben and I watched the entire first season of Mr. Robot in like two, two and a half days. I'm clenching my fist emotionally. Wow. That show is a roller coaster. It is. And every second of it is really good. Although the side effect is now that Ben thinks that he's a hacker and can (laughs) learn how to do all of that stuff. And we may or may not have engaged in some playful office trickery because he figured out how on the computer to turn... Like, you know, when you type in your password and it's asterisks, you can literally just go in and edit the HTML on the web page so that it shows up as letters, which seems too easy. <laughs> so so if there's ever a remembered password, you could just look at what it is. Yes. Oh, we must tell the world about this. Hey, kids. <laughs> when you I've log just, I feel like I am obligated to spread awareness of this now because that's ridiculous. But anyway, Mr. Robot is a really good show. Rami Malek is amazing having only seen him in the night at the museum movies (laughs) i was not really expecting him to be the tour de force that he was you didn't appreciate him as king tutankhamen i mean no he was great like (laughs) i I like the night at the museum movies i think they're super fun but that's neither here nor there (laughs) i'm kind of interested in how this show portrays hacking uh I had heard, uh, yeah, I'd heard that this was one of the better uh, displays of it, but it wasn't. It's dumbed as down a little bit, like obviously, because you would have to. But from the limited knowledge that I have of hacking, it seemed fairly accurate to me, like as accurate as you can have it on a TV show on primetime cable. Right. <laughs> Another thing that I really like about that show is that there are actually a lot of female characters, and only. Only one of them is not treated in a way that I like, which is a pretty good track record That's a great for ratio. a TV show. Yeah, there's, I think, let's see, one, two, three, four main female characters. Yeah, and all of them are, like, very different kind of people. And, yeah, that is really about as good as I can ask for from that kind of show. That's generally about, like, 
troubled lone wolf dude doing his thing working through the world another thing actually now that i'm thinking about that i like about that show is the main character elliot is very seriously mentally ill and they do a good job of using that as part of his character without exploiting it and that is really refreshing because normally when you have a mentally ill person on a show it's like look they're crazy and can't function and ruin everything it's a tough line to walk yeah, and it's like there are times when he can't function, but like in real life when you have a mental illness, there are times when you can't function, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your entire life and activities are void. It's also visually one of the most interesting shows I've watched recently, mm. and that will probably content- get even more ridiculous as the creator, Sam Esmail, is writing and directing every episode for season two. I'm mm. really hoping that that's going to go well and not go like True Detective. Oh. I have a little bit more faith in him, considering all of the best episodes of season one were the ones that he wrote and directed. And also, he's just not Nick Pizzolatto, so it helps when you're not Nick. It, that is a big, <laughs> big factor in your stuff not sucking. So. Yeah, it's not, it's not like he got rid of Kerry Fukunaga. Like, he was like, you know what? I don't need that guy. <laughs> he's got a pretty good handle on it. This is true. Uh, so, yeah, the other thing that I watched... Well, okay, I watched... Two other things this week. I just want to touch briefly on one of them because I don't really have a lot to say about it. I watched the last Hunger Games movie in theaters and wow, it was terrible. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. I, <laughs> I and you liked part one to, I liked to, part one like, a to lot. clarify. It's not yeah. like you've been ragging on the whole series. Yeah, no. Kyle, what was your question? Uh, what are your feelings on the rest of the movie? I've never seen Hunger Games movie. I have no idea whether or not that would, like, you know. I've watched the Harry Potter movies. I, I generally get along with big blockbuster tri- quadrilogies. Uh, yeah. I mean, I generally liked the first three Hunger Games movies, and I kind of knew going in because I read the book series and thought that the ending of the books was horrible. Hmm. So I was hoping that they were going to do like a Hollywood thing and give it a better ending than the one in the book. <laughs> and they didn't. They stuck with the ending in the book. And yeah. Also, I feel like it's definitely Jennifer Lawrence's like weakest performance as Katniss because for most of the movie it's just them running around shooting like fake battle propaganda videos and not actually doing much of anything. What do they call them? Propos? Propos, yeah. So it's just, it's fairly boring and then it's just over. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Does it still have the, I watched part of the first one and actually got motion sick watching it from the shaky cam, which that never happens to me. It's one of the few movies where I've just had to put down because I couldn't get through it. Does this still? No, they've definitely slicked up the production a lot as the series has moved on. Partially because there aren't as many kids killing kids that they have to hide behind shaky cam. So yeah, that too. (laughs) That helps. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess. I was just hoping for better, and it was fairly lackluster. But the thing that I watched that I do want to spend a minute talking about, uh, I watched the Brian De Palma movie The Untouchables, which stars all of the broody white men, uh, Mm. including 1980s Kevin Costner, Sean Connery. um, Oh, God, who's the other guy that was in it? I don't know, some other dude that's, you know, does that. Broody white guy? Yeah. So it's a crime drama. Go figure. Actually, you know, this might be on the IMDb Top 250 now I think that I'm it thinking is. about it. I think it is. So it's about Al Capone and Elliot Ness battling it out over Prohibition or whatever. And it's like an okay movie. Robert De Niro. Robert, yes, thank you. <laughs> but uh, he, Kevin Costner, 
it baffles me that he has been a leading man for so long because all of his line deliveries are so wooden. He'd be like, damn you, Al Capone, for doing this. Ah! Oh, wait. I think I've seen part of The Untouchables. Is it, yeah. Does it have, like, a really bad version of Chicago? Like, it looks really CGI? Yeah. And yeah. also, the score is so ridiculously dated. It literally feels like they chopped up three different movie scores and just threw it on top of this movie. Because you have part of it where it's orchestral, normal, period piece music. And then there's, like, the lone saxophone solo as he, like, wanders <laughs> through the city. And then there's inexplicably drum machines and synthesizers during the chase scenes. And I feel like it would have been a much better movie if it had had just a classical orchestral score because it makes it feel really dated and not even the right kind of dated because it's set in the 1920s, but you have these very 80s musical motifs going on. And yeah, but all that aside, uh, Armani did all of the costuming for the movie and 1980s Kevin Costner in a three piece Armani suit is truly a gift. So we did at least get that. <laughs> and I will allow you to keep that. <laughs> I, I am just too familiar with modern day Kevin Costner to... Oh, no, he was still, like, wasn't a great actor, but he looked really good. <laughs> it's all the cats. You know the... <laughs> yeah. You know who would look really good in a three-piece suit? That's not even fair. Like, you can't <laughs> do that. That's just... not even... You're not trying. No, well, you're not, no, you've got to put in more effort than that. Yeah. You're wearing I'm, a Captain America shirt. I'm, That's all the effort I need. No, it's not. I'm Were bit, you wearing that the last time we recorded? Too? I was. <laughs> that was two weeks ago. I have washed it since. <laughs> anyway, for sevens, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. I'm not going to go in on it because we have to now have this entire half hour discussion about Star Wars. No, so. no, no. I, I actually <laughs> have something I want to talk about before Tyler and I pollute this podcast with that. Excellent. Please. Um, yes, Kyle, tell I, us. I'm not, I'm not caught up uh, on Let the Right Films In. Has anyone talked about Master of None on here yet, I assume? I've talked about it a little bit, but I had. I don't think I've talked about it since I finished it. So, Kayla, have you watched that yet? That's kind of. I haven't. I haven't seen it yet. So, if we could keep this discussion slightly spoiler-free, that would be cool. Oh no, no! It's... It was mainly this was just going to be a vehicle of me to like plead you to watch it because this oh, okay. is just one of the most interesting <laughs> things I've seen this year. Uh, it like simultaneously charmed me. It almost put me into tears. It made me laugh. It was just it. Aziz Azanari is just one of the most surprising performers of 2015. Because I really liked his comedy. I liked him okay in Parks and Rec, which is not a show that I'm consistently fond of. I know that you are. I apologize. It doesn't <sighs> It doesn't always make me laugh, though. I don't always find it comedic. Like, I could find it charming and nice, but not always funny. And I think this uh, stays funny, relevant, and has very thoughtful commentary on a lot of issues that I know you, Kale, care about, and especially that I care about. And it just... It never stopped surprising me all the way through. It was one of the few TV shows that I've watched this year. And, you know, I, watched, I went through all of Black Mirror and love that and, you know, finally got around to seeing that. And this was honestly just one of the best things that I'd seen this year. Uh, and I implore anyone who's, um, you know, looking at it and goes like, ah, Aziz Azanar, he's kind of silly. Like, no, you should really, like, really give this your attention because even it's a little silly at first. You know, the first episode has, like, a little boy, like, rubbing his penis on, like, waffle boxes and you know there's goofy <laughs> shit like that but it also addresses really serious concerns in society and does it in a way that i think only as he says an art can uh and like in my eyes like really uh really put him on a level that i just didn't expect uh both as a performer and a writer 
So I implore anyone who hasn't explored that to to hit that up as soon as possible. And plus, like the episodes are like twenty minutes long. It's wonderful. But yeah, that's super awesome, and I've super wanted to see it. It's obviously all over Tumblr right now. Yeah. It's everybody's favorite thing right now. It's a tremendous show. I'm, I'm really yeah supporting. no, I'm really excited to watch it. It's just that other things have been taking priority so it's, i also still haven't watched jessica jones so yeah. <laughs> you just sit down to do that more too. so than jessica jones because i mean i tore through jessica jones too because it is very serialized and very good but master of none is half the length and yeah. lighter and it's just so easy to just tear through that in no time it's also so hard to be painfully sincere about um you know social justice issues while still re- like retaining wonderful entertainment value for everybody i think anyone you you could watch that show and not have a lick of idea of like race consciousness or feminism and still watch that show and be very entertained by it and i think that's like not many people can walk that line as well as he can or as well as he did uh, and he had several co-writers um and it's not i'm not just focusing on him i'm just not really aware of the other the names of the other actors on the show but there are there's so much fantastic talent uh involved with that so yeah. Oh, awesome. I, I mean, I have the cast list pulled up. Noah Wells, uh, Noel Wells as Rachel is really good. And oh, yeah. she's so she's super good on um, Saturday Night Live. I love her. She's really funny. Who is like, it? She, who is this female buddy that he is always like hanging out with? I can't. Uh, Lena Waithe. Yeah. Oh my God, she's incredible. She That's she drops like just inc- just fantastic little knowledge lines. Like she's a bit too blunt with it sometimes. It's, you know, it's not always done with the amount of care that you might want, but it is always on point. It's one, with every scene that she's in, she almost steals it for me. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. And then you'll get like H. John Benjamin every yes. now and then. Yes. Just yes. doing his H. John Benjamin <laughs> He's thing. He's incredible too. <laughs> no, it's just, it's a really, it's such a smart and funny show that never it never feels like it's necessarily preaching to you and it never sacrifices the comedy or the intelligence right. for the other thing. It may, it's able to maintain all of those things throughout. Great it's, balance. Like, right. I, like the first episode's fine, but the second episode when it, it deals with him and his friend's parents, his yes. immigrant, their immigrant parents, like the first episode's fine, but the second episode suddenly is just so unlike anything you've seen and immediately is just a mark of what Aziz can do on this show. And like he's Aziz and all his friends, and it's, it's just incredibly good. Right. And so, so now, uh, I think Kayla can walk away or set a timer. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. It is currently one fifty one p.m. <laughs> if we have not wrapped up Star Wars talk by like two ten, <laughs> maybe less than that. I don't know. I was gonna we'll, say we'll, you're we'll gonna give us long. twenty minutes. Yeah. Let's not do it. Let's not do that. Uh, so I okay, just, that is like twenty minutes. I just yeah. got back from the IMAX for from seeing this. It was the first IMAX film I'd ever seen. Uh, first movie in three D I'd ever seen, which was uh, ridiculous in kind of a terrible way. But Tower, what was your experience since we've not heard from you yet? <laughs> well, I saw Star Wars yesterday with our fr- um our friend Monica Date, who was on the Pan's Labyrinth episode. Friend of the podcast, Monica Date. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars super fan, very fun person to see a good Star Wars movie with. And but even if I hadn't been with my Star Wars super fan friend, just like looking at each other, crying to each other, laughing to each other, annoying everyone around us. Uh, this was a tremendously fun experience, and star- it's a really good movie. It is not. It is not like a great movie. It is. It did not top the experience of seeing Mad Max or It Follows, for example, when I saw both those movies in theaters multiple times. But it is. 
a really fun experience and I will definitely be going to see it again soon. JJ uh, Abrams does a really good job of there's a lot like this movie borrows a lot from the original trilogy and it pays a lot of love and attention to the original trilogy in many ways and they don't always work, but it does a nice job of doing a lot of that without for the most part sacrificing quality or coming off as too much like fan service, even as there's a lot of fan service. The most important part is the cast, and that's what I was most excited for going in because I am not a st- I'm not a stand for Star Wars. I do not adore the original trilogy the way many of our generation. Have you even any- read the books? Like, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Look, the expanded but, universe. Uh, I was most <laughs> excited for the cast, and the cast was so so good. Daisy Ridley is incredible, and she was the one who I knew the least about. Oscar Isaac and John Boyega are both excellent. Adam Driver is really good as this complicated, petulant villain. And I felt very satisfied with how well the cast did, because fuck all the racist and sexist douchebags who doubted this casting before, more than doubted it, who decried this casting when it was announced because this, they are so good. They are all so very, very good. So yeah, go cry about it, white nerds. Yeah. Uh, I do have one question. How many lens flares are there I, in the movie? Really not that no. many. <laughs> no, actually. It's so pretty it's not going to be like free. Star Trek where we die if we try nope. to play that drinking game. <laughs> it will not, No. If you want to do how many times I tear up and feel a lot of things, then we'll die. But uh, Kyle, how about you? Star Wars. It's the, it's the first Star Wars that has comedy in it. Like genuine comedy. It's not so comedy funny. that was written by like a, a wooden man and it like it was clearly not human. Like the, the past Star Wars movies <laughs> have not felt like human uh, human projects at all. There's there is nothing natural about them, about their acting. Like I love Star Wars. Look, I read I read some of the books in high school. Okay, look, I, I, I was that person. I no, okay. I dated a guy who like his entire life was Star Wars, so that may contribute to some of my sourness. Yeah, on and so you know that sickness, and you know it's really bad. And I, you know, I, I come from that. Um, and to he's a survivor. You know, yeah, exactly. He's a and survivor. I, he's not going to get one. Sorry, no, no, you're you not sorry. It's, it's it's wonderful to step back from having that uh, history with it and feeling so happy with this. Like all, all of me was just radiating with joy, not because I was personally, you know, it, not because it was speaking only to me, but because it speaks to a whole new generation in a very different way. Like it is amazing that the two leads in this film are not just white dudes. Like it, it's fantastic because this franchise has only spoke to that audience for so long. And now they, like an entirely new generation of kids, like granted what you think of corporate branding, uh, you know, a Star Wars will exist regardless. It is better that it exists in a way that welcomes new people. And it's actually funny. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't take itself too seriously, especially in an age where we have just far too many movies that are blockbuster hits that are just so severe and are unwilling to provide any levity for their audiences. Like, it was just fantastic Super. to me that I was, was, yeah, I was genuinely laughing at this. And the, and the trailer for Batman came on before this movie, and all I could think was, I can't take this anymore. Oh, see, we did get that. We got much more fun trailers. Yeah, I got, like, the most dour. I got the Civil War. Like, it was just guys looking grim, fighting each other. And so having, like, John Boyega, like, you know, have his boyish charm in a way that has never been in any of the other Star Wars movies ever. 
he is genuinely entertaining and funny. It made me laugh out loud in a way like, and I, I didn't have to be 10 years old to have that happen. You know, it was fantastic. Right. I wonder how much of that has to do with kind of like the Disney branding because the Marvel titles, like all of the Marvel movies, they have that severity, but they also have a lot of humor in them. Mm-hmm. And so now that Disney owns all of those things, right. I wonder how much of that has to do with them as a parent company or if it's like a conscious decision of the writers to not go the Zack Snyder route. Yeah, I, I think... You know, John Boyega, the selection of John Boyega and Daisy Ridley definitely feel like a very conscious effort of like, what did the last movies do? We need to do the opposite of that. We need to do people that actually can provide talent that, you know, they, they have a history of performing in things that we that we can verify and they will give performances that people will care about, which both of them did. Daisy Ridley is incredible. Uh, that character that she plays does incredible things. Um, like it's awesome that like young women are going to see this and have like an action figure to like, not a toy action figure. And not like, like, and not like slave Leia bikini. Exactly. Yes. It was just, I was so pleased by that. Like I can, I can imagine having, you know, having kids and and taking this like a, a, you know, a young girl or, you know, knowing young girls who watch this and go like, okay, clearly I have someone to look up to who doesn't have to be a princess or subjected to like slave labor. You know, that's fantastic. Yeah, and that's, like, what's exciting to me. Like, I I kind of <laughs> was a little cross with Tyler earlier for tweeting about, like, <laughs> me, like, for tweeting from our Twitter about how I would, like, allegedly react to the Star Wars talk. <laughs> and I, I do want to clarify just a little bit. Like, I don't hate Star Wars. 90% of my problems with it are plot and character related. Also because, exhausting. Because, well, because, like, like you said, they're not, like, written by humans. Like, ever, <laughs> like, almost, for me, almost everything in the original trilogy just falls really flat and just feels like the characters don't really develop. They don't really do anything. None of it feels earned. And obviously the prequel trilogy is just straight up bad. So I'm not like, if this is a great movie and from the way that you guys are talking about it, it sounds like I'm going to have a great time watching it. Like I'm not opposed to Star Wars in any way. And I just wanted to clarify that because Tyler (laughs) made me sound like a huge asshole on our Twitter. Like, I'm just going to come in here and be like, oh my God, you guys like Star Wars? No. (laughs) Which is not how I feel. And I very consciously on all of my own social media was trying to clarify the point that this is not necessarily my thing, but I'm glad that you guys are excited and having a good time. And, and you know what? Like, the way that Disney has handled the, handled the branding and advertising of this movie, I would not blame anyone for not giving a shit about Star Wars after these past like <laughs> m- months of just advertising overload. You could dedicate an entire podcast to have, like how oversaturation is maybe not the best route for a movie that was already going to receive, uh, you know, unadulterated amounts of attention regardless yeah i was talking to ben about it and i was like i i almost feel a little bit like the jewish kid at christmas right yeah. now because yeah. this is almost has this has almost no impact on me <laughs> like, and yet we live in a star you're living in a star wars world now yeah tyler actually redecorated our entire apartment <laughs> in the day and a half that i was gone <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not true. That would be really impressive, actually. I, I might. I got some construction paper. My I, cats are wearing like Darth Vader helmets. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna put a BB-8 cap on both of them. You could. Uh, you could dress oh, up Phoebe as Luke Skywalker. She only which, has three legs. <laughs> speaking of which, two of the th- remarkable things about this movie. There are many of them, but like, what the humor is a big one. This movie is really funny. Is, yeah. John Boyega and Oscar Isaac and. 
those two especially, but a number of other characters too, um, just are really good at delivering funny lines, which we knew with about those two coming in, and I'm glad they used that. Also, it really highlights how bad the other actors kind of are. Like Harrison Ford, I'm not saying Harrison Ford is a bad actor, but uh, him and Carrie Fisher are both like kind of rotten. Like they're both doesn't really Harrison wooden. Ford, I, doesn't Harrison Ford classically really not give a shit about Star Wars? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna defend Harrison Ford a little bit here. Harrison Ford has not tried this hard in a movie in a long time. <laughs> that's that's not saying his, much though. And it's not saying much, but also his character is like not giving a shit. I think he does a fair, like a fine enough job in this movie. I think mm. he does a good enough job that he delivers some funny lines. And he, without saying too much, he, like, serves... The the purpose that he serves in the movie, I think he fills it admirably enough. I wasn't terribly distracted by how much better, like, Oscar Isaac and John Boyega were. But, yeah, but Daisy Carrie, Ridley, Carrie Fisher is almost indefensible in how much she just does not want to be there. She just looks as though she could just be on vacation right now. You would never know the difference. It's like, yeah, we asked Carrie Fisher to show up on set and, like, nod a couple times. I think it's really interesting, okay. too, if you, if you think about that, um, just like the way that standards for good movies have changed in the past 40, 50 years. <laughs> it's been and a while. Like, we'll kinda, we'll, well, we'll kind of get into that with, with Casablanca and when we do older movies on the podcast as well. I think that there's just a higher standard now. And so when you have actors from this older generation who, you know, probably feel like, oh, this is my movie. Like, I did this already and I don't really have to try. And then you have these, like, newer generation actors who are all about, like, method and art and proving themselves to, you know, a ravenous fan base. Like, Harrison Ford probably doesn't have to work very hard because the minute he shows up on screen, some fanboy is going to, like, start crying. Whereas, like, Daisy Ridley has to not only be the greatest actress in the movie she has to overcome all of these preconceived notions about how terrible she and her character will be right and even now when she does a really good job she is too good in that like people like i got one on the whole rant this morning because max landis is one of the people leading the charge calling her a mary sue saying she's too good at everything i'm sorry do we want to talk about luke skywalker and whatnot in the first trilogy it's okay let's go hang on what What's going on? Uh, so, so Max Landis, who's like the screenwriter of a number of uh, nerd movies, um, okay. he is calling. He says that Ray is the worst Star Wars lead because she's a Mary Sue and is too good at everything. Oh, I'm sorry. So, the writer of <laughs> Victor Frankenstein, American Ultra, Chronicle. Oh, wow. I, I, he's he's a, I, I like Max Landis. He's a talented dude, but this is to- like. And I don't think it's overtly sexist what he's doing. I think this, like, it's a very specific thing for him. Like, it's a specific pet peeve. It's very unfortunate that he chose this movie to do it with. Yeah, and like, and like, and the high expectations and the, uh, the probably being a contrarian, anyways. Like, I feel like he thinks he's making like a stand for quality or whatever. But I think it's misguided, and also it's going to enable a lot of people who are just sexist and who yeah. are just gonna be like, yo, I'm not a sexist. But like but this female character is not actually a strong female character. Yeah, like she that's... she's like too strong, so she's not actually strong. That sucks. Okay. And I'm like, we can have this conversation and we can criticize things we love. This dude filmmaker is not the one who should be lead, like having that leading that discussion. Yeah. I don't know. Let's. 
I, I'm gonna yeah okay so I'm gonna table I have not seen the movie yet so I don't want to comment on things I don't know about yeah I am going to preemptively say fuck that guy though <laughs> yeah because like honestly yeah I'm sorry I'm looking at your filmography and I'm not seeing where you have any leg to stand on because two of your movies don't even have female characters in them and yeah so anyway um Star Wars is good you should see it. Yeah, yes. Star Wars is good. I will Daisy try, Ridley is incredible. Yeah, I want to try and see it before next week's podcast so that I can talk about that a little bit more because that is honestly already really annoying to me that there's already some dude trying there's, to do that. Well, with how much people love the new Star Wars, there will inevitably back, be backlash as there was with Mad Max and Furiosa. Yeah. Was there a backlash with that? I hadn't heard that at all. Yeah, there was. Of there course people, there is, but... Yeah, there, like, there, were, there were thick pieces on how... Is Furiosa really that strong of a female character, or is she too strong well, people, and she's not vulnerable the, enough? The only opinion that I heard about, the only criticism of Mad Max that I was willing to hear, I cannot, I cannot remember the individual on Twitter I follow. I will, I'll maybe send it to you after to put in the show notes. But he criticized Mad Max for not being necessarily a piece of feminism. His feminism is not about uh, inhabiting the destructive qualities of masculinity. Like that's not necessarily, which is an argument. That, like, okay. Like, I see where you're coming from. Like, you know, death and destruction and murder, just because you put it in the hands of a woman, does not necessarily make that a feminist text. I can understand that see, argument. I would not even say that that's what Mad Max does, though, because the good thing about Mad Max is that there is more than one female character. So you have Furiosa, who embodies that kind of, like, patriarchal, masculine violence thing. But then you have, like, what's her name? You have, like, all of the other, the wives who are all very different from each other. And that's what people miss a lot of the time when it comes to that. When you only have one female character or one non-white character, it's on, it's like the onus of that character to carry all of the representation for everybody. I I think the tweet was aimed at the movie as a whole, as like a film of, you know, a film about violence, film containing so much violence in in a system that already produces so many movies that contain, you know, unwarranted amounts of violence. Not necessarily at any one character, but I absolutely see your point. Yeah, it's also always fun when these criticisms about how it's not actually a good female character because of how strong he is come from dudes yeah. so often. Yeah, I think a lot True. of times men will also forget that female strength comes in lots of different forms because obviously we've talked on the podcast before about how giving a female character masculine traits doesn't necessarily make her a good representation. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's something to be said for that because there are those kinds of women who are traditionally like non-feminine and like. If you're looking at like the army or whatever, should have room and for stuff both. like that. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. So it's two oh six. Star Wars. <laughs> We're gonna move good. on. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're gonna move on. We will talk about this more, I'm sure, over the next like ten podcasts mm. because I don't see the Star Wars thing going away anytime soon, and I will have to see it and etc. So uh, the movie that we are actually talking about this oh, week. I I had a couple more things. Oh my god. All right, Tyler. <laughs> I and I just wanted to mention briefly. I did watch a bunch of other things. I'm only gonna drop two quickly i finally saw the fifth mission impossible movie it is really good rebecca ferguson is incredible in it as the counterpoint to tom cruise's ethan hunt and that movie does not totally come together at the end but has some of the most impressive set pieces outside of a mad max movie (laughs) this year and i just watched inside out as well which was an emotional roller coaster it is another just incredible movie from pixar with incredible cat voice work and casting and i mean amy poehler as joy as the literal emotion joy there is not much better casting that you can get than that <laughs> i don't know emotional roller coaster is about the best pun you've ever made about a movie on here yet 
especially for Inside Out. So, or maybe the worst. I don't know. It depends on how you look at it. Uh, shame on you. I'm proud of my shame. <laughs> okay. Really? No, <laughs> no it's okay. The movie that we are talking about this week is Casablanca. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Rano, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. All right, so Casablanca is, as I mentioned before, regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time. It was released in 1942, and it's kind of blasé at this point to say that everybody who worked on it thought it was going to be terrible, but that is true. (laughs) It was directed by Michael Curtis, who was mostly famous for working with Errol Flynn and not having a good grasp on the English language. (laughs) Uh, He also later would do movies like Mildred Pierce and White Christmas. So there's a good chance that if you watched a Hollywood journeyman director movie between the 30s and the 50s, it it probably had something to do with Michael Curtis. The movie had a budget of around $950,000, it was not released internationally, so domestically it grossed $2,875,243, which I'm assuming adjusted for inflation today would be roughly all of the money. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's all of the movie, the money, but it's it a, was a success. It's a decent amount of money. It made which, three times its production budget. Yes. So a lot of the issues going into the movie were that it didn't have a finalized script the entire way through shooting it. And outside of that issue, Humphrey Bogart was kind of in the middle of a messy half-divorce from his wife at the time, and she was crashing the set every 20 minutes to make sure he wasn't cheating on him or cheating on her with Ingrid Bergman. Mm -hmm. And There's a great, shockingly, there's a great You Must Remember This episode about this. (laughs) Yes. Which we will include in the show notes. Yes, this is the podcast again where we just become uh, You Must Remember This. Shills for You Must Remember This. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I love you, Karina Longworth. Anyway, so I've seen this movie a lot because I have a vested interest in old Hollywood and I guess you could classify this sort of as film noir. And, like, Humphrey Bogart's in it. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) And so, yes, I guess I'm just curious, like, Kyle, Tyler, your first experiences with this movie, like, how you have perhaps felt the cultural impact of this movie. God, I don't... When I come across movies like this where I have... It was almost actually... I was thinking about this as I was watching Star Wars today. It's like, how do you... How does someone who has never seen this franchise or this film before that's been referenced across all of our uh, media life, how do you then come to that movie? And for Casablanca, I feel more than any... That is perhaps just about the most quoted movie across the spectrum that I, I that I can remember. The, you know, it has... Here's looking at you, kid. 
and while I said Paris, I feel like I've heard those phrases throughout my entire life, and I didn't actually have any reference for that until I saw this in college. Uh, you know, I was sitting it's in a classroom. It's funny because, uh, yeah, when we were watching it, Tyler was like, oh, are all of the quotes from this movie? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It, you cannot escape this movie. Uh, you know, I never listened to the Beatles in high school. Whenever I would tell people that, they would always tell me, like, oh, well, you've, you've definitely heard them. You just don't know it. And I feel like Casablanca is the movie version of that. You know, you've you've heard a lot of bits from Casablanca. You just haven't watched it yet. Uh, and my, I guess my biggest surprise when I first saw this movie a couple of years ago is that, like, it, it's just a wonderful experience today. Like, there's no... Most of the time, with uh, if you don't have a great reference point for old movies, you haven't absorbed them throughout your youth, you really don't know how to encounter them. They're slower. Uh, there are a lot of elements that you just can't really recognize. However, this movie, I, I kind of... I can blend into... Uh, you know, very seamlessly with all of my other entertainment watching. Like, I, I didn't, I came to it before I really watched anything that was in black and white. I know that's shameful uh, that it took me that long to, to get there in college. But when I was watching that, I was like, wow, this feels modern. This, uh, it, it feels incredibly modern, even now, uh, which is just an amazing feat. And I think that's my biggest takeaway of it. I don't have a personal attachment to it, though, and I almost wonder if that is due to the referential nature not not Casablanca's fault at all um but you know I encountered song titles that referenced it I encountered you know quotes on tv shows to the point that when I when I got to the actual text I don't know that it had the punch for me that it may might have had had I gone in completely blind that's the issue that I think a lot of older movies have and we talked about that a little bit when we did the Maltese Falcon is that what was and when we did Rashomon too like what was new and exciting then is but like if you watch it now you're more likely to pick up on things that have become cliched and not really appreciate that this is the movie that made that happen that's a problem that right. people have with citizen kane a lot <laughs> yes yeah yeah i feel like citizen kane and this go hand in hand pretty right? much like, yeah it's just their texts that are referenced so often that when you finally come to them, you're like, oh, well, I feel like I've experienced this 10 times before in, in a lesser form. Like, obviously, this is the complete, the wholesome version. You can recognize its strengths. Uh, it's very, very few weaknesses, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I can sit down again and watch this movie and go like, wow, I feel like I just watched a movie that just happened to be filmed in black and white, which is, again, very incredible, especially for me. I don't have a great attention span. Um, but this movie moves at an incredible pace, which I think is its kind of its greatest benefit um it doesn't linger at all it moves precisely with the amount of speed that you want and plot and plus it has characters that you really grow attached to and they never they develop in interesting ways quickly and i think that's its greatest benefit that it does move at a kind of a snappy pace now tyler well i only just saw the movie for the first time for this podcast um, I have been aware of the movie for longer than I've been aware of most movies. I've heard the word Casablanca. The fun part was when I was younger, before I learned any foreign languages, when I heard Casablanca, I thought it was took place at a castle. <laughs> I, at a certain point, I learned that it was a love story about like it was like this very fra like this very I don't know like emotionally wrought, fraught, whatever, uh, love story between these two people. And I thought it took place at a castle. So in my mind, I developed this idea of like a Phantom of the Opera meets Dracula. 
kind of love story. Oh my god, can we write this as a screenplay, please? <laughs> so Bogart kind of looks like a Dracula. I can, so from I can like age probably eight to fourteen, fifteen, I never questioned that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, man, one day I really need to check out this Casablanca movie. It sounds pretty killer. Is it? So it's not like a horror movie. No? Okay. All right. I, I'll give it a shot. This sounds interesting. Bless little time. Along the way, I learned more about Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca and, you know, the kind of movies that they would make that would win Best Picture at the Oscars. And I realize this is not a movie that takes place in a castle. I mean, I now have probably what will be my greatest story idea ever. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so I watched Casablanca for the first time. Discovered, oh, Casablanca is a city in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Old and, French Morocco. And our uh, leads are just kind of trapped there and dealing with all these emo- old emotions that have come up and, you know... World War Two era things. I'm like, this is a much different movie. I th- my movie was much more in fantasy. This movie is much more based in uh, the horror, certain horrors of reality. And, uh, you know, it's probably a better movie for it. <laughs> Weirdly enough, the actual movie is better than eight-year-old Tyler's idea of what yeah. the movie is. Yeah, strange that eight-year-old, eight-year-old Tyler, Tyler better. had some really fun ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, I have finally discovered, after all these years, what this movie is actually about. And I quite enjoyed it. Although, the first time I watched it, and I've seen it twice now for the podcast, it was very distracting, and I was like, oh, that line's from this movie. Oh, the theme song for You Must Remember This, from this movie. (laughs) Oh, okay, the gin gin joints line is also in this movie. Ah, here's looking, okay. So I have heard this entire movie already, all right. (laughs) I think, yeah. uh, Also, the entire cast of the Maltese Falcon, almost, is in this movie. (laughs) Old Hollywood. Yeah, so, yeah. So, an important thing to remember about Old Hollywood is that Mm. movies were cast based on who was contracted to the studio. Mm. So, you kind of have all of these movies that have all of the same people in them. You really kind of just exchange out whoever Humphrey Bogart is in love with until he married Lauren Bacall, and then it was only Lauren Bacall. Yep. (laughs) That much I have learned in the past few years. Yeah, so I definitely don't think that that is necessarily the best way to go about casting a movie because you actually lose out on a lot of good things. And I think, I want to say it was this movie where the only reason they got... Let me look through the trivia quickly. If we made superhero (laughs) movies in old Hollywood world... We'd, Chris Evans would play every superhero. I mean, I'm not seeing that as a bad thing. <laughs> Each movie, like, we'd have a different actress playing Pepper Potts or uh, Sharon Carter. To be fair, they're at least always different characters. It's not like they're replacing <laughs> them. But yeah, True. so, for instance, I can't find exactly which actress it was, but they got to use one of the people in this movie specifically because they were like, okay, if you let us use this person in this movie, you can have Olivia de Havilland in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Old Hollywood did those deals, like loaning actors out to other studios all the time, which is like terrifying language to use about human being, I mean, loaning them out to another studio. Well, especially when you consider that mostly this was happening to the female movie stars and not so much the male movie stars, yep. particularly uh, the young 
ones. <laughs> like, I'm sure eventually we'll talk about Judy Garland and how sad everything ever about Judy Garland is. Nope. That is neither here nor there. Something that I really like about this movie and about a lot of old Hollywood movies, and we talked about this briefly when we were watching it, I love the way that probably up until the 50s or 60s, a lot of movies very much sound like stage plays. Just the way that the dialogue is used to move the plot along and used to really develop the characters. Um, I guess it's a little bit like telling instead of showing, but it makes for such a snappy script that I think it has its own charm to it. And especially Casablanca, because it was technically based on a play. It was just a play that was never made. Oh. <laughs> it's called, it was called Everybody Everybody Goes to Ricks, Everybody Comes to Ricks, or something like that. It was an unproduced Broadway play. And they just picked it up and were like, we will put people in this, yes. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that even though it is produced under those means, um, and it's one of the, like, oh, this is more like theater than it is the Hollywood or uh, production design that we recognize during our age, it has a great sense of movement to it. Like it, it does have a place where you can really, really feel the, the you know, the, the 3D qualities of, of Rick's, of that place, of that bar. They do, a gra- they do a great job at moving through that bar and really giving you a sense of what that place is like, which was impressive back then. Oh, yeah. You got the front room and the back room and the different spaces in well, there's all like Yeah, rooms. there's like an upstairs and then you have mm-hmm. Rick's actual apartment yeah. that's attached to it, especially considering that like 90% of the movie was shot on a set. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I think that helps. It isn't as confined as some movies uh, that, like, in that circumstance, are like the one that we ended up not podcasting on, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, uh, Dial M for Murder, which is an example of a play adapted to a movie, and you can feel it because there are like three rooms, and you're always in those same rooms in the same spot. I don't think yeah. that's necessarily always a bad no, thing. No, either. Not I, no, no, always. No, in that movie particularly, it was done very poorly. No. <laughs> Which also probably had But it makes it impressive when the, the fact that this was adapted from what was a, a play to begin, it probably helps them expand more because it was never actually made, that they're able to get more of a sense of place. Well, and it also depends on how many like sets and places are written into the script. This is true. I, I recently watched Lolita for the first time, and the confinement and suffocation that that movie provides through its sets you know, is... Is wonderful considering the the plight of the young of the young of Lolita in the film. Um, it, it actually works very well in its favor as a result of that. As an example of what you're yeah, about. I've never seen Lolita either. I'm okay with that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's yeah a troubling film, but I mean in that regard, then like because it is confined in those sets, like it does well mirroring what it's trying to do. I lost my place in my notes. <laughs> you mean in my notes? Yeah, in Tyler's notes. <laughs> Which I didn't take the greatest notes, so my notes are not very helpful. I just thought she was awkwardly hating the, my fa- my. Oh, no, no, no. I No, okay. So the okay. thing with movies like that is that while the subject matter is problematic, like, it is culturally relevant. <laughs> so yeah. at certain points, you have to deal with those things, like when we eventually have to do Roman Polanski movies. <laughs> um, mm. One thing I wanted to mention, and I don't... I. As much as I have learned about old Hollywood in the past year, especially, or like, and just over the course of my life, um, I was surprised that Sam, our, uh, our, our black piano man, is not more racist, I suppose. He's actually, yeah, He's like we, we an talked actual about this a little character. Bit. Yeah. 
Can we use the actor name and not call him the Black Piano Man? I don't think that helps the point. No, nope. uh, I don't have I'm the actor name on, on hand. That, that oh well, I like I cut. I didn't mean like I wasn't using that in place of his <laughs> name. Dewey, Dewey meant, Wilson. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dewey, like uh, I knew his name was Dewey Wilson, but I just meant in the movie he is uh, like okay. in the movie he is this African American gotcha. piano like jazz piano player, and my apology. I am so, like, surprised he's not he's not embodying like a stereotype of like the black piano man more. He's like legitimately Rick's best friend and like he takes care of him when he's bummed yeah. out about Ilza. He makes sure that like he's not drinking himself to death every night. Yeah, like when he first appeared on screen, I was ready to cringe. I was like mm-hmm. like oh, the like the one black character in this movie is just there to sing jazz piano. And I mean, I mean, Rick even mentions human, you know, human lives. Uh, yeah, as kind of a direct reference of. Go so ahead. I was yeah, gonna say up. what I, I was just gonna say. What I like about that is that he very pointedly sticks up for Sam several times in the movie, and yeah, treats him like a human being, which sadly for the time is fairly rare in film. Yeah. <laughs> Very impressive. But, like I, part of where that, like, why I'm saying that is like I, hearing about the treatment of a lot of the black actors at the time was pretty bad. Like even the biggest African American stars or just non-white stars were like if they were lighter, they'd be classed in like white roles, or they only play the like they'd only play like the token ethnic character or they'd be swapped out for different ethnicities all the time. So I was not expecting this character to be treated as well as he was in this movie. That's old Hollywood, new Hollywood. That that's timeless. That attitude, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's like what we were talking about. Kind of a a similarly, almost contemporary movie, uh, gone with the wind. The actress, the main um, black actress in that movie was actually banned from the premieres in the South and Clark Gable was like fuck you guys like not going to any of these if you're not going to let her go and that was only 14 years before this movie yeah so it's also nice like I love old Hollywood and there are so many of these movies that I like but a lot of that has to come with a caveat of the way that minorities and women and etc. are treated in them. So it's nice to find out that not everybody was a giant piece of shit. <laughs> like Gregory mm. Pat, Clark Gable, um, Judy Garland, all of them were very progressive for their time. And so it's, it's just, I don't know, it's nice to remember that sometimes <laughs> when watching these movies that like you don't have to just like turn off that part of your brain and be like, okay, that was bad. And yep. <laughs> um, another thing that I like about this movie is that it treats Ilsa's feelings with a lot of respect, I think, which for a woman in a movie in the 1940s who was technically having an affair is a pretty big deal. And it's funny because the only reason they were allowed to get that past the censors, there's a line where she yells at Rick and says, Victor Laszlo was my husband, and he was even when we were in Paris. They wanted them to cut that out because they're like, oh, you're glorifying adultery. And they're like, well, she thought he was dead. (laughs) So you can't really blame her for being adulterous in this case. But I think it does a really good job of illustrating that you can have feelings for more than one person. And for a movie in the 1940s where, like, you know, women are generally housewives or, like, femme fatales who will eventually die, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, it's wonderful because Rick doesn't really shame her for that. He just doesn't understand the situation. Uh, and the reveal, you know, the reveal to the audience about, oh, well, you know, I thought my husband was dead is more touching than it is. Like, you you never feel ill will toward Elsa right. at all. You only feel like a mixture of confusion and then, uh, all, you know, a lot of empathy for her, for her position. You're never meant to distrust her or hate her. You're kind of only with Rick's, you're only feeling Rick's sorrow for her, you know, his longing for her, which and is And that's, nice. I actually uh, like that. Like, there's not... All of out of all of the main characters like Ilsa, Victor Laszlo, Rick, Sam, like none of them are ever played out to be like a villain. Yeah. Like Victor Laszlo is by all accounts an amazing man who is just trying to do his best and help end the war. And Rick is just a dude who happens to be stuck in Casablanca who eventually does the right thing and helps them leave. And Ilsa's just a woman who, like, thought her husband was dead, fell in love with someone else, and then did, at the time, the right thing, which was go back to the man she was married to. And I just like that all of them are given this very three-dimensional gray area. Like, they're not bad. They're not necessarily always good. But we don't have to shame any of them at any time for those proclivities. It has a lot of positive thinking that I think wouldn't survive today's Hollywood. <laughs> like, Rick would not, in today's Hollywood, Rick would not, like, walk away, uh, you know, with the police officer. He'd, like, punch uh, Victor uh, Laszlo in the face and, like, jump on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He'd have, like, an arm missing by the end to go, you know, in the next three sequels, I'm going to get you, Victor Laszlo. <laughs> you know, it would. Or at the very least, it, at it, some it, point, they would have fist fought. I yes. think yeah, I think that's yeah. a good thing is that they very clearly respect each other. Like Victor Laszlo, obviously there are scenes in the movie where you can see him kind of come to the realization that oh, this must be the guy. But he had he at no point He's not jealous. He, he does yeah, he's not jealous and he doesn't vocalize ill will towards Rick. He in fact like knows that Rick is the only person that can help them. And Rick, to his credit, doesn't like use that to his advantage really. He just does the right thing. Once again, Humphrey Bogart is playing a guy who's got that tough exterior, but deep down, he's got a soft heart. I mean, that's pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that's what Humphrey Bogart is like in movies. Reluctantly helping people down on their luck because he just, just can't <laughs> help but do the right thing. Oh my God. And, you know, it's also funny, Kyle, that you mentioned that you don't think that this movie would survive in today's Hollywood. Because in the 80s, as a joke, they sent out the spec script for Casablanca to various studios and all of them turned it down as, like, too trite, not enough sex, not enough violence, like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then they were like, just kidding, it was Casablanca. And they were like, oh, shit, just kidding, it's the best movie ever. <laughs> can we, are we going to talk about the Madonna thing at some uh, point? Y- sure. Was that near we the can, trivia No, we can part? talk about it. Uh... <laughs> I don't know. My, it's my favorite thing of researching this film was was finding that fact out that Madonna wanted to remake this in war-torn Iraq in 2008. Wasn't it like her? What? She wanted she wanted her and Ashton Kutcher to star in it or something like that? Was it Ashton Kutcher? That's I think even better. it was Ashton oh Kutcher. Um, it was so good. Oh I mean, it's terrible, but it's so good to know that that almost exists. Well, I would have never wanted that to exist. <laughs> But the fact that it almost did is great. That's hilarious. Uh, no, it did not almost happen. I do want to point out that every studio she tried to give it to, they were like, you don't touch Casablanca. Oh Are you God. kidding I'm me? going to say that that's, a da- that's such a dangerous thought that just having Madonna announce that fact is dangerous Yes, enough. okay, so almost... she wanted her to play Ilsa, and she wanted Ashton Kutcher <laughs> to play Rick Blaine. She pitched the idea to every studio, oh but God. was un- 
on and you know, oh i'm sorry i can't read unanimously rejected by every studio and Beautiful. they all were like Beautiful. are you fucking kidding me God. Uh, oh, I, what, if it was, what if it was Drake? Oh my Drake? god. <laughs> IMDb helpfully tells us the project has since been scrapped by Madonna. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, basically, you cannot redo Casablanca, and I'm glad that there is at least some shred of dignity left in Hollywood where they understand that there are certain movies you can't remake. Barely. Barely. <laughs> but, yeah, so. I mentioned earlier that the director basically couldn't speak English. And it's funny because Ingrid Bergman was also still learning English on set. <laughs> so the here's looking at you kid line was something that Humphrey Bogart accidentally improvised. And then apparently just kept saying because when they would play poker between takes, they would say it to each other. And <laughs> somehow this helped her learn English. The The, the trivia is a little... Uh, hazy on how that all worked out but apparently it was part of her learning english and they just decided to stick it in the movie (laughs) and it became one of the most famous lines of all time which is kind of funny because i feel like when you're watching the movie it just kind of comes out of nowhere because he's just like da 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 and he's like here's looking at you kid and then just randomly he says it 15 more times throughout the movie (laughs) it's like his cheers yeah you kid i don't know i think it's funny how many of the lines are super immortalized at this point that to the point where like you hear them in the movie and they sound wrong of all the gin joints in all the world she walked into mine that one is fine <laughs> there's a reference to that line in the second episode of serial like that's how wide this influence goes uh, the most recent episode uh, of serial uh, just you know the pervasiveness of that is again not Casablanca's fault at all. Sorry, it just it just occurred to me that I was listening to it the other day and, and thought about that. You just it, it's something that you'll never escape. And if you haven't seen Casablanca and then experienced all those things, I don't know. Oh, like, I just watched Mission Impossible but, Five, and the super spy who serves as the foil to Tom Cruise, her name is Ilsa, and at one point <laughs> they meet in Casablanca. Are you yes? Really? Yes. That, is... really? that, that seems a little funny. That's... <laughs> that, that, that happens in the movie. I, mean, I don't know what you expected from a Mission Impossible movie. Those Great things. And you know what I got? Great things. I've never seen Mission I Impossible. I Mission Impossible okay. movies. I'm just saying I don't feel like they're paragons of subtlety. <laughs> oh, no. But that's part <laughs> that's, of what's great about okay, that. John fair. Woo did a Mission Impossible movie. So... Is that the third? The second one. <laughs> that the second is not one. what we're talking about. That's oh, <laughs> that important. We should watch that. Can't wait for that oh episode. Oh, oh man yeah i think another really great thing is despite the fact that everybody who worked on this movie hated it it still came out as this very poignant good thing because it's i can't remember who it was i this was on the you must remember this podcast talking about how I want to say it was Catherine Hepburn, but I'm not 100% sure. Went to lunch with Humphrey Bogart and, and, and Ingrid, and like literally all they did the whole time was talk about how terrible the movie was and how they definitely needed to come up with a plot for both of them to somehow get out of doing this movie. <laughs> so I can only imagine the frustration that came later. <laughs> 
with this like being widely regarded as the greatest movie of all time, the best performance either of them ever gave. Nominated for eight Academy Awards. And like it kind of reminds me of the Clockwork Orange effect where Anthony Burgess wrote it because he just wanted to make money and was like, you will buy this awful thing that I have made. And then it became his most like enduring classic work, despite the fact that he literally just like shit it out in a week. <laughs> and so that it is just as good as Casablanca. Casablanca. Um, no. <laughs> that is not quite the comparison I was hoping to make. Oh, well, that's what I got out of it. <laughs> but um, I guess I'm curious like, as to your thoughts on how that... The art rejected by the artist becomes revered by the audience. Yeah, and not even that. Like, I wouldn't even necessarily say that it was a cohesive piece of art at the time they were making it because they were literally rewriting the script every day. So really, it's the the editors that should get all the praise. Just like, who edited this film? Put them in the Hall of Fame. Probably, yeah, the editors and the actors. work. Because, yeah, Humphrey Bogart hated all of the dialogue, thought it was terrible, and you know, that kind of works with his character. Maybe that w- actually worked pretty well. Maybe, I feel like his performance was entirely fueled by spite. <laughs> <laughs> that explains a so lot. So when yeah. he got nominated for this be- that best actress, god damn it. He was probably like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so speaking of that, it was nominated for, for eight Academy Awards. Uh, best director, best writing and screenplay, which is again hilarious to me. Um, it's kind of like I can't remember what movie it was, but Robin Williams was, or no, was it Goodwill Hunting where they were not allowed to submit it for best screenplay or whatever because Robin Williams improvised so much? That sounds maybe. So I'm just, yeah, anyway. No, no, because they won. Because they Affleck and Damon won. Okay, for there that. was a movie that Robin Williams was in. Where he improvised the script so much that they told, like, they weren't allowed to submit. Oh, it was Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> what a loss. That, that couldn't get yeah, wow. Anyway, so one outstanding motion picture, which was, I think, at the time, like, best it, picture. Best picture, basically. Yeah. Um, they were nominated for best actor, best supporting actor, cinematography, film editing, and music, but they lost all of those, which I think is interesting because a lot of. My issue with old Hollywood movies is that they're not very visually interesting. And Kyle I think, was just talking about how this is visually interesting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think, and that kind of goes back again to, like, the fact that most of them are being produced off of stage plays. So, like, when we look at movies today, we look at camera work, we look at editing, we look at color. And I think it's really cool that a movie like Casablanca has a lot of very positive camera work qualities in a time when that wasn't well, really a focus. Well, and also, I think... A- I wonder if that parallels at all. So we haven't seen Carol yet, but it's one of the movies that's being rumored for best cinematography versus like uh, like The Revenant or Hateful Eight. Like, I wonder if that might be a comparison. Again, we haven't seen Carol, so I can't say for sure. But a movie that isn't necessarily super showy being appreciated for skillful cinematography nonetheless. I think there's a lot to be said about restrained, soft mm. focus like really focusing on the characters because yeah, you can do a lot of amazing scenery things with cameras and I'm not saying that those are not great shots, but sometimes there's something to be said about just being reserved and gentle as opposed to being like, here is my Oscar bait scenery shot. (laughs) Or even like when I was talking about network last time, like I'm really appreciating the framing of the conversations. Like sometimes just the way that you, Put the, like how you frame people in the shot can be really striking, mm-hmm. you know, or how you move. the camera does not move without intent in this film. 
like there's a purpose to every shot and i think that you like utilitarian way can also be very beautiful in a way that, you know we get so many unnecessary shots now that's kind of all what hollywood does of like we get a cut here we get a shaky cut here uh in casablanca is this really wonderful depiction of like very purposeful lighting i can i can think of one in particular um with rick being very somber at the bar when he's drinking and I think there, you know, there's one, there's maybe one light illuminating him and then one in the back. And uh, I can't remember if it's in deep focus or not, but it, it is just wonderfully composed to make you feel lonely, dark and despair, just as he's feeling. And I feel like all the shots in this film, uh, you know, echo that kind of, again, like utilitarian purpose of like, we want you to feel exactly what's going on. You know, the, the bar scenes are, are very well lit there's noise coming from everywhere you can feel uh, the vibrancy of the scene uh there's a purpose to everything and i think that, that and helps. i think that's again what lends so much to this movie ending up being so iconic like the the scene where ilza is you know trying to threaten him into giving her the papers which ends up being like kind of their last romance scene oh yeah that reveal just, yeah, the, the oh gun. my gosh yeah and i just feel like it's really cool that she holds her own in that scene because when you mm-hmm. think about it, she was the most inexperienced actress on the set. She was working kind of in like with this ridiculous, crazy director and no script and like literally one of the greatest stars of Hollywood. <laughs> and just, I don't know, that whole scene is really awesome. And again, I feel as, like you said, very purposefully framed. I also really enjoy that while during the conversation she tells rick that he has to do the thinking for the both of them because i feel like her character is super conflicted all the time (laughs) and like she knows what the right thing to do is but she knows what she like she knows what she should do but she knows that what she wants to do is not that and i don't know i like the sneaky way she kind of is like well you can decide if i stay here with you or you can send me on the plane with my husband. Just you figure that out. <laughs> also, have either of you seen For Whom the Bell Tolls? I have not. Okay. Because no. she was nominated for an Oscar the year Casablanca came out, but for a different movie, it looks like. She, so. Yeah, she was actually not in a lot of stuff. She quit acting at a certain point, no. specifically because she didn't like the politics of Hollywood. I was wondering, because Humphrey Bogart and... Um, the guy who played Laszlo both got na- nominated for Oscars, but she didn't. And I was wondering who else got nominated that she got left out. I think it's like... She didn't get left out. It's more... Yeah, she got nominated for a different movie. And also you have to remember that a lot of old Hollywood stuff like that was politics. Oh, yeah. So if she was a fairly it well... Was? Like, po- the well, it still <laughs> is. But like... there, And even today that actually prevails this whole like, oh, well, it's kind of your first movie. So like, we're not going to nominate you now. Yeah. But or like later... Leonardo is now yeah like how denzel washington didn't win the academy award for training day and then won it the next year for like whatever toss away movie he was in because they were like shit we realized we messed up by not giving you this last year so here's your consolation academy award (laughs) another interesting thing is that this movie is set during world war ii and was also made in the middle of world war ii (laughs) And we so say very timely because yeah. it like it came out while World War II was still going on. So that, all that like not even just fresh in their minds, they were still in the middle of it with all this stuff happening. Which I wonder if that also played a part in the movie hitting the way it did. 
Oh, certainly. It was like, I'm pretty sure that they rushed to get this made specifically for, oh, yeah. like, patriotic pride reasons. They did. <laughs> a specific raid or attack or something had happened that is specifically noted for why they rushed it. Mm-hmm. Um, something in Africa, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. There's, yeah. And that's, like, another thing that's kind of hard to keep in perspective when watching it. Because, for instance, when we watched it... Um, there's the scene where Victor Laszlo conducts the French national an- national anthem over the Germans singing their like Peter Laszlo. No, Victor Laszlo. Yeah, it's Victor. <laughs> Apologies. Um. Anyway, so he starts having the crowd sing the French national anthem over the German national anthem, and like you were kind of joking around. And I was like, "Are we having a sing off right now?" And I was like, "Dude, no! All the extras in this scene were like Holocaust survivors, so this is actually mm-hmm. everybody's crying. Yeah, all of that crying is real because they're remembering the actual horrors that they have experienced through this war at the hands of the Germans." And even, like, kind of standing up to them on film was a big deal. And this is also one of the last eras where we can have a villain in a movie and it be very clear-cut and have the ambiguity exist more between the characters uh, and, you know, their love story. Because the Germans we can hate with abandon, <laughs> right? You know, we don't have to worry about the complexity regarding that. Everyone hates the Nazis. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that the new Star Wars film has Nazi corollaries in it who are just as evil and unredeemable. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, yeah, they're always the enemy that you can hate and feel com- complete free of That's guilt. That's true. Uh, okay, actually, I made that comment in jest, but even now, when we need a villain that is... It's the safest. You, yeah, you make them look like... Like, you make them look obviously like Nazi Germany if you want us to know that they're truly evil and unredeemable. I mean, yeah, that's why every conservative politician in this country, just whenever they're angry at something, are you're like a Nazi. Which uh, is ridiculous you know, and but, offensive, yeah. honestly. <laughs> yes, it is is absolutely terrible. I think in Casablanca's case, though, by having such a clearly defined enemy that, you know, you're in the throes of war, you obviously hate them, they're doing heinous crimes. You know, not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them. Um, it allows that more ambiguity that they're feeling, the the particularly the romantic ambiguity that can take stage and take a more interesting life as opposed to, you know, the, the war, um, which takes up, you know, a backseat to Rick's complicated feelings regarding Elsa and her, and her marriage. Which is so nice because there are so many like complicated anti-hero wartime movies. Yeah. So it's nice to, I I don't want to say it has like a feminine perspective because it really doesn't, but it has kind of not an overtly masculine tone to it. Which is, again, pretty surprising for a movie at that time during that very wartime I was say, I do appreciate... I, I like the war as backdrop as opposed to the war as focus. I feel like that does not happen much. We can blame Saving Private Ryan for that, uh, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. As yeah. a new Michael Bay war movie is currently dropping trailers. I... I don't think there's anything wrong with war movies. No. I just think that there's only so many ways you can tell the same story over and over again. And, like, I just like the war as a different... As war as a setting in a different way than just being in the war. Yeah. But being adjacent to the war. The well, war being the backdrop. It helps you remember that, like, <clears throat> not just soldiers are affected by war. You yeah. have all these refugees and American citizens and I think that's whatnot. what makes it even more affecting is besides this whole love story going on is that there is that... What could possibly happen to these people, even though they're not necessarily soldiers, they're involved in it in some way, and they're under threat, even as they're dealing with all these other things. Mm 
Have, have either of you seen the movie that is about the Holocaust that came out this year? That is being... Son of Saul. Yeah, about have you? I have seen not that seen it yet. I'd like to, but I don't okay. think there's any easy way to see it. Okay, then we, we can set that aside. But I was just thinking that as a, a war as backdrop for character stories. Was I, I I I gathered from what I had read about that film that that was a similar That's case, maybe not a romantic. Also, one. kind of similar to like low as I am to give kudos to Roman Polanski. The Pianist is also a pretty good example of that, where you have just like a random dude experiencing all of the loss. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna bring that up as well. <laughs> <laughs> but Adrian Brody. You know, I Adrian actually. Brody. This is what I think. This is my theory is that Adrian Brody oh, no. used all of his whatever inside of himself on that movie, and and there's nothing yes, left. And then that there's was, a predator left. There was a predator to be left. Fair, Adrian Brody is in my favorite movie of all time, which came out in 2008. <laughs> so, like, maybe it wasn't all gone, but God. Do you know how embarrassing it is to tell people you like Adrian Brody in this day and age? Wait, sorry, which movie uh, the, is that? The Brother Sloom. I've recommended okay. it like okay. six times on the podcast. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. I've not heard that. It has, I will, I will yeah, note it that. has him and Mark Ruffalo and Rachel Weiss in it. It's like a con man whimsy adventure movie. So, completely the opposite of what we're talking about right now. But I cannot plug that enough. So, actually, it is kind of related because Ryan Johnson directed it and Ryan Johnson Ryan Johnson's going to do the next Star Wars movie. Star Wars. So, I was I was going to bring up when you mentioned people hating their very popular works like Al, Al Guinness played you know obi-wan in the original trilogy hates star wars like with a passion thought it was the worst most vapid shit that he'd ever worked on i love him uh, which was which was great <laughs> you know as a star wars fan when i was young as a kid i was devastated i was like oh like the the eccentric old man hates these films and he's actually an accomplished actor <laughs> but uh i grew up in respect right that all right so now that we have wandered all the way back around to star wars i feel like we're kind of coming to the end of the discussion here yeah, yeah sorry, no that's sorry, okay um do you guys have any closing thoughts or sentiments on Casablanca. Well, I am glad that I've seen Casablanca because now I can be seem slightly less like a film Philistine. And when I posit opinions on things, people are like, what? I have one less movie that I have on my, oh, you haven't seen that? How do you know anything list? I hate also, that attitude. <laughs> I, I do too. <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> but I uh, also really enjoyed it and I'm glad that I saw it. I've I really... One of my favorite things about this podcast is diving into some of these older movies that, while I've heard about, I have not had the means or the impetus to watch before now, and this gives me impetus to watch them, starting with the Maltese Falcon and now with Casablanca, and I'm sure more Humphrey Bogart movies from here. You were speaking to the attitude of, like, oh, you haven't seen this, like, and, and hating that. Uh, I saw this when again when I was in class and I saw a string of other films I, I saw the jazz singer and then uh, also like birth of a nation and in uh, citizen Kane obviously and I think out of like all those films like th- this film is kind of paired with citizen Kane often enough because citizen Kane is usually regarded as, you know as the you know the most important film of all time or whatever I feel like Casablanca is just a much better film than any of the other films I saw it alongside uh, and it is one of the films I can walk away feeling positive. I feel like I saw a great piece of filmmaking that holds up today. Uh, and you don't really have to see that other... Like, I, I don't hate Citizen Kane, but I don't necessarily feel a need to go back to it and revisit it anytime soon. Um, whereas, like, Casablanca, I would love to see again and love to revisit. And I feel like it's something I can return to and feel super happy about. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that Citizen Kane is, like, the 
obnoxious art student movie <laughs> whereas yeah. Casablanca kind of has more of that pop sensibility where it's just it's enjoyable outside of its technical aspects which Citizen Kane really is not <laughs> when we when we do yeah, that movie I, on the podcast like it's gonna I haven't seen it since high school and I already am kind of like it's gonna be a slog to get through again <laughs> because it's it's exhausting it's, just, yeah, it's, it's very long and very convoluted and technically very amazing <laughs> Yeah, Casablanca instructs that you can be both intelligent and fun, uh, you know, and sappy all at once. Like, those don't have to be mutually exclusive ideas. Yeah, which right. I... So, exactly. Nice. <laughs> kind of like Star Wars. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so we will move on. We will move on to our recommendations for the week. Yay! Yay! Uh, Kyle, what movie would you recommend as a follow-up to watching this movie? Oh, God. Um... I just watched two other classic movies that, uh, you know, that people might, you know, snobbily go like, oh, you haven't seen that. Um, I watched Persona by Ingmar Bergman uh, and M by Fritz Long. I think M is kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a bit harder to get through. It doesn't move at a great pace as Casablanca, but it's so interesting. It's one of the first murder mysteries to ever appear on film. Uh, and it, it deals with violence in a very thoughtful manner. You know, we talked earlier in the podcast about you know, violent imagery, and uh, I think it actually meditates on it rather than just handing it to the audience without thought. And then Persona, I'm still processing I'm, it. Uh, I, I really, really wanted to do that soon, <laughs> so yeah, we should maybe plan uh, that. I, I would, lo- I would love to if you guys want me on again for that because I, I still don't really know what to think about it. I'll probably have to watch it at least two more times before I really have a concrete opinion awesome. on it. But I recommend watching. Awesome, it. <laughs> Tyler, do you have one? Do not, whatever you, the thing that you just showed me on your phone, do not do that. <laughs> Tyler just showed me an article entitled, Dear John by Nicholas Sparks, a modern Casablanca. Uh, We're immediately going to find whoever wrote uh, that and kill them. No, Nicholas Sparks <laughs> said that. It was a quote from Nicholas Sparks. Well, I already wanted to kill Nicholas Sparks probably like eight years ago. So now I'm just ready. Just ready. <laughs> so many things wrong with that sentence. Yes. Yes, there are many things wrong with that sentence. Um, I'm going to go ahead and recommend a later Humphrey Bogart movie called Sabrina, which stars him and Audrey Hepburn. And it is another really great example of Humphrey Bogart kind of being the cantankerous dude what? who falls for like the cutesy, whimsical woman. And it is a really good movie. I'm shocked. And everybody should watch it. <laughs> yes. So my recommendation is 100% cheating. But it is fitting enough, and it is a plug for one of our older episodes. Uh, we actually already mentioned it on this podcast. We did the, an episode on Pan's Labyrinth with our friend Monica Date, Star Wars superfan. And honestly, Pan's Labyrinth um, is the movie that most can't comes to mind in terms of a modern movie taking place in wartime without specifically being about war. Um, that movie also, as... The, our young protagonist is on her fantastical journey. Uh, the characters, she and the characters around her, are beset by some of the, um, some by some of the negative effects of war. They are the, between the rations and the the, the stepfather is the actually, literal evil man. <laughs> the literal the evil stepfather who actually is a military officer. It's a little more direct there, but. She's on this fantastical adventure as 
all those around her are being affected negatively by the war. And I think that is good uh, parallel in addition to being a, a an advertisement to go back and listen For to our that episode own podcast. of our podcast. You should totally watch Pan's Labyrinth. I will say if you're going to go back and listen to that episode, probably just skip the recently watched section because it's like 40 minutes long. But it's really good. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Tyler, that was when we had to instill the only talk about two things rule. <laughs> but yeah, so <laughs> moving on. Uh, my fun trivia of the week. I mentioned earlier that Michael Curtis was really bad at speaking English because he was Hungarian. And on the set of this movie, he asked one of the prop men for a poodle to appear in a scene. (laughs) So this prop man, they literally stopped filming forever because this prop man was searching high and low for a poodle, which nobody understood why he needed that. So he brings in the dog that he finds finally. And Curtis starts screaming, no, like a poodle, a poodle of water. He wanted a puddle in the scene. And yes. So... (laughs) He was bad at that. There was also a movie that he directed where he, I think the line was like, he asked him to bring on the empty horses or something like that. Like, dude, just, it's actually a miracle that he made as many seminal classic movies as he did. Cause I'm not sure anyone ever understood what he was saying. That, you know, it was really that conflict that helped drive those movies though. Probably. The can actors you imagine spitefully not having, <laughs> performing. Can you just, imagine not yeah. having a script and not being able to understand your director? <laughs> like, maybe we don't give old Hollywood actors enough credit. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Tyler, what is our stat of the week? Uh, my stat of the week is about our lead cranky man, Humphrey Bogart. He is in four movies on the 250. We have already knocked out two of them with the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca. Which only leave the treasure of the Sierra Madre and the Big Sleep. The Big Sleep is going to be so fun to talk about because nothing that happens in that movie makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Raymond Chandler is the worst author of all time. (laughs) Shots fired. But uh, still really enjoyable. The entire point of The Big Sleep is like, you will have no idea what's happening in this movie, but you will enjoy the ride. (laughs) Which is kind of film noir in a nutshell, honestly. But yeah, so... That about finishes up our discussion. Thanks, Tyler, I guess. Uh, Thank you, Kyle, for graciously allowing us to continue doing your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, you too. You guys are doing a great job. Um, We're going to get some advertising in here soon. Money. (laughs) But yeah, so uh, if you are looking to get a hold of us at any time and place, you can email us uh, at ltrfipod at gmail.com. The more fun and interactive way to get a hold of us is on our Twitter, which is mostly Tyler, sometimes me. Also, twitter.com slash ltrfipod. Uh, we have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash in. Thank you again to the people that have liked that so far. It is pretty cool to have that sort of support, despite the fact that Facebook is kind of the worst <laughs> and makes it really hard to reach audiences without spending money. But that is neither here nor there. Isn't it, though? (laughs) We also have a Tumblr where we post all of our show notes and film posters and cool things. It is lettherightfilmsin.tumblr.com. As always, you can find all of the podcasts on iTunes. If you leave us a review and or rating, we will personally come to your house and hug you. Not actually, but 
we can imagine. Um, it is also I available. I was committed to it. <laughs> it is also available on all of your podcast listening apps, such as Podbay FM, Overcast, I don't know, whatever it is that you use. Stitcher. Stitcher. <laughs> yes. So thank you again. Pocket for- Cast is what I use. Pocket Cast. Thank you. Pocket Cast. What a CD collection, like a leather-bound <laughs> you can, CD You can download them all from iTunes and in. burn them to CDs. And we will do that product. for you. We should do that right. for our parents, actually. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening again to Let the Right Films In. We'll fade out with some Casablanca music, probably. all going well <laughs> yes <laughs> i think we've done a great job so far mm-hmm. um let's pause for a second because our blanket fort is falling down on <sighs> us your cat is so dumb <laughs> she's not dumb it wasn't her it was him he's not dumb either yes he is all right hold on tyler's fixing the blanket <laughs> hey, dummy. Cat, he's why? just he's just trying to do his best what about an article called eight movies we should remake with the rock Tyler, recommendations. Tyler, can, yes, please <laughs> stop doing this to me. I'm gonna throw you off this podcast. As the <laughs> I think Kyle, again. I think Kyle technically still owns the podcast. I don't yeah. think we ever got it back from him. You guys are on my watch. Come on. <laughs> what if I started like a couple notes of Casablanca? Okay, yeah, that's pretty much it. A couple notes of Casablanca, and then you must like, remember. Burn! <laughs> <laughs> you must remember this. Da, 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 da. <laughs>